Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. Before we dive in this week, I just wanted to give a quick shout-out to those of you amazing listeners who have taken the time to review our podcast in the last couple of months. We've had a handful of really flattering and thoughtful new reviews, and it's amazing and, quite frankly, inspiring to hear such great feedback. We appreciate so much that you took the time to share your love of Tales to Terrify with others. Your support really is the lifeblood that oozes through the blackened veins of this podcast and that makes bringing these tales to unlife each week so incredibly worthwhile. And as small a gesture as it might seem, it's tremendously powerful in helping us to attract new listeners. So again, thank you. Speaking of bringing you weekly tales, we've got some ground to cover, so I think it's time we got back on the road. This week, we're crossing into the state of Indiana. So many stories of hauntings, possessions, and terrifying creatures come from far enough in the past that it can be fairly easy to brush them off as the byproducts of a less enlightened and sophisticated time. It's part of what makes history the perfect vessel for horror. Where knowledge and understanding are lacking, superstition can become a common crutch, especially for those things people struggle to explain. Modern times definitely aren't immune to the supernatural, but science and technology have made it easier to explain away. 
I think that's part of what makes the story of Demon House even more interesting. It happened only about eight years ago. And it all begins with flies. Not long after moving into a rental house in Gary, Indiana with her kids, Latoya Ammons and her mother, Rosa Campbell, began to notice something strange. Flies, huge, black, and slow. And not just a few, either. They swarmed the porch in thick clouds. And no matter how many they killed, there always seemed to be more. Maybe not totally abnormal in warmer months, but in the chill of December? They noticed other weirdness around the home, too. After midnight, while the kids were in bed, Latoya and Rosa would sometimes hear heavy footfalls coming up the stairs from the basement. They'd wait, holding their breath, while the latch to the basement door would click and the door would creak open. But no one was ever there. They began to lock the basement door, but even then the noise continued. One night, Rosa was startled awake by an ominous, hulking, shadowy figure pacing the house. But when she leapt out of bed and flicked on the light, the only thing she found were large, wet boot prints on the living room floor. As unsettling as these events were, things truly took a turn for the terrifying in March. A group of friends and family had gathered in the house for a wake, a time for celebrating the life and mourning the loss of their loved one. It was almost 2 a.m., the kids asleep in the next room, when Latoya's daughter suddenly screamed, Mama! Mama! The adults rushed into the room to find the girl lying unconscious and unresponsive, inches above the mattress, levitating. Their immediate reaction was panic and confusion. But after trying to wake her with no success, and not knowing what else to do, they circled the girl and began to pray. After a few minutes, to their huge relief, the girl descended back to the bed, and her eyes fluttered open. She looked up, confused by all the worried faces that surrounded her. She had no memory of what had happened. Now, flies and banging at night were one thing, but with this latest incident, whatever resided in the house had clearly become a threat to the children. We need help, Rosa told her daughter. We need to talk to someone who knows how to deal with it. They contacted a number of local churches, but few were willing to even hear them out, let alone help. Finally, one church offered some advice. Cleanse the home with bleach and ammonia, and then draw crosses on all the doors and windows with oil. Also at the church's suggestion, Latoya poured olive oil on her three kids' hands and feet and made crosses with it on their foreheads. One clairvoyant they contacted also suggested they make an altar in the basement and burn sage and sulfur to help cleanse the home. At this point, they were willing to try anything and everything, and pretty much did. And for a moment, their efforts seemed to pay off. The house was quiet for three blissful days, and the family began to relax, even just a little, to breathe a slight sigh of relief. 
But it seemed the evil, the demons, within the home, were only gathering their strength. Just as the family began to let their guard down, the entities struck, possessing Latoya and her three children. When a fit would strike, their eyes would bulge, huge malicious grins would contort their faces, and their voices deepened to unearthly growls. At one point, the adults found the youngest boy sitting in the closed closet, chattering away as if there was someone in there with him. Flinging the door open, though, they found no one. You can't see the other boy, he told them. The dead boy. Playing along, they asked, What are you two talking about? He's telling me what it feels like to be killed, the seven-year-old said in a flat tone. Things continued to escalate from there, and soon turned physical. In one instance, the seven-year-old was violently flung out of the bathroom, torn off of his feet without warning, and thrown bodily against the hallway wall. In another instance, Latoya's daughter had a heavy wooden headboard thrown into her, resulting in a trip to the hospital and several stitches. Latoya decided it was time to open up further about their problems, to seek help elsewhere. She pleaded with their family doctor for assistance. Understandably, he was more than a little shocked. He listened with patience and a heavy dose of skepticism. His brow furrowed, and he began making notes in his file about hallucinations and delusions of ghosts. But as his pen scratched across his pad, a violent outburst came from the two young boys. They began to yell and curse at him in deep, otherworldly voices. And then, while medical staff looked on, one of the boys was picked up and thrown against a wall by invisible hands. And then both of the boys passed out. Despite all attempts to wake them, clinic staff wasn't able to bring the boys back to consciousness. They called 911, and a rush of paramedics and police descended on the clinic. They took the kids to the closest hospital, where the boys finally came around. Unsurprisingly, it didn't take long for child services to show up either. The kids' strange behavior and even stranger stories from their mother and grandmother raised more than a few red flags. The child services worker assigned to the case, Valerie Washington, examined the children together with hospital staff. There were no bruises or marks, and they all seemed healthy physically. Their mother was subjected to psychological testing, too, which determined she was of sound mind, all of which made the potential allegations of child abuse a little less likely, but still not impossible. While Washington chatted with Latoya, though, the seven-year-old began to growl, softly at first, and then more viciously, baring his teeth, eyes rolling back in his head. As they watched, his hands shot out and wrapped around his older brother's neck, small fingers surprisingly strong as the adults struggled to pry him free. The older boy, left gasping and struggling for breath, 
as his brother thrashed and growled in the arms of the orderlies. It took a while for things to calm down, but later that evening, Washington brought the two boys into a small exam room to be interviewed, along with the grandmother Rosa and a nurse. Almost as soon as the younger brother met his sibling's eyes, he began to growl again. It's time to die, he said in a deep, raspy voice. I will kill you. In response, the older brother began headbutting his grandmother in the stomach. She grabbed his hands and began to pray, and as she did, a wide, menacing grin split his face, and he began to walk backwards, first to the wall, and then up it, until he reached the ceiling, when he flipped over backwards to land on his feet behind his grandmother, his hands never leaving hers. Washington and the nurse, terrified, did what any person would probably do. They turned and ran out of the room. Evidence was mounting for their case. Plenty of people had witnessed the strange occurrences in the hospital. People that weren't associated with the family and typically predisposed to skepticism. The upside, if there was one, was that the church had finally begun to take notice. A priest was sent to the home, and after hours of interviewing and experiencing some of the strange phenomena in the house himself, he determined the host most certainly was possessed. At his urging, Latoya and Rosa left the house to stay with a relative, while the kids remained in the custody of Child and Family Services. Along with local police, Child and Family Services also visited the house on two occasions. Both times, the entire group left with the sense that there was something fundamentally, spiritually wrong with the house. Even seasoned police officers couldn't help but feel there was something more going on, something unnatural. With so many witnesses to the strangeness, it was getting harder and harder to deny the possibility of supernatural activity. And eventually, the church allowed what they called a minor exorcism. The house was blessed, and Latoya underwent an exorcism herself. But the troubles persisted, and it eventually took three additional major exorcisms, two English and one in Latin, to fully rid the family of the demonic forces that had held them captive for so long. The family moved to Indianapolis, and the house was eventually purchased by ghost hunter Zach Baggins, who filmed a quote-unquote documentary there, before tearing the house to the ground. So whatever darkness may have been trapped inside Demon House, well, it's either been unleashed on the world or buried underground forever. I'll let you decide which is more plausible. Now, what say we find ourselves in possession of a little fiction of our own? Our first story for the evening comes from Kev Harrison. Kev Harrison is an author of dark fiction from the UK, living in Lisbon, Portugal. He has recently had work published in the acclaimed Lost Films Anthology from Perpetual Motion Machine Publishing, Beyond the Infinite, Tales from the Outer Reaches from Things in the Well, We Shall Be Monsters from Renaissance Press, and Terror Politico 
from Scary Dairy Press. He has forthcoming stories in Gallows Hill magazine and in Darkness Delight from Corpus Press. His first supernatural horror novella will be released in 2019. Children of the Night, join me for Kev Harrison's Afraid of My Own Shadow, a Tales to Terrify original. Good morning, Antony. Can I call you Antony? Antony nods as she sits in the white chair opposite him, grey light barely streaking in through the blinds. He draws his hands from his pockets, knitting his fingers together on the table in front of him, trying to hold them still. The woman takes a folder from under her arm and tosses it casually onto the desk in front of her. Antony's eyes instinctively dart to it, his breath gathering in his throat. Her voice shakes him from his daze. My name is Detective Superintendent Lyle. Now, you were telling my colleague at the scene about the incident, after you first called the emergency services. Anthony nods vigorously, his hands clenched together, knuckles turning white. Why don't you tell me what happened, Anthony? She says, and clicks the round red button on the voice recorder. Well, well. He starts, then makes a hoarse sound in his throat. Lyle stands and walks to the corner of the room where there is a jug of water and three plastic glasses. She fills two and brings them back to the table, setting one in front of Anthony. He grasps it, drinking half of the liquid in two loud gulps. Better? Thank you, yes, he says. So? She takes a sideways glance at the voice recorder, then forces a smile, urging him on. It had started happening again a couple of weeks ago. What had started happening? My shadow. It comes loose. Then it starts... It starts communicating with me. What do you mean by the shadow coming loose, Anthony? Can you explain for me? He lifts his hands above the surface of the table, catching the glow of the strip light. He unfolds them, one thumb around the other, gestures down at the tabletop. Do you see it, my shadow? Look, you see? Lyle nods. I see it, Antony. It's connected to me. If you follow the lines, it's part of me, tethered, not loose. Antony looks into her eyes intensely, unblinking. Lyle takes a sip of a water, peers over at the voice recorder, still running. Antony lowers his hands to the surface of the table. What happens when your shadow comes loose, did you say? He nods again pulling his hands out of sight and shoves them into the pockets of his grey, prison-issue trousers. I don't know when it's going to happen, but when it happens, I'll just be walking past a wall or a door, like that one there. Anthony nods towards the locked door behind and to Lyle's right. She glances over and then looks back to him. Then it'll just sort of peel away. His eyes linger on Lyle's hand as they write, peel away in bold letters. She puts the pen down on top of her notepad. How does he, it, communicate with you? Usually just the eyes. 
He moves them, gestures with them. I can follow if I pay close attention. Antony watches again as she writes the word eyes, with three question marks after it. She brings the pen up to her lips and chews on the end, her gaze distant. Then she points with it towards Antony. You said usually. Does he ever communicate with you verbally? Antony leans forward, his fingers running through his fine hair, his palms come to rest on his temples. Antony! He stands up, his chair falling back and clattering to the ground behind him. The voice, he says, and begins to pace around the other side of the room, before scurrying back again. The voice! The voice! he says like a mantra. What does the voice sound like, Antony? He looks at her, his lips slightly parted. He closes his eyes and shakes his head. The voice is like, is like wet paper, but loud, so terribly loud and everywhere. Antony sits back down. Did the voice tell you to do this, Antony? She opens the file and pulls out two photographs. Antony reaches out with one hand, touches the first photo. Tears well in his eyes and races her down his gaunt cheeks. Ian, he says. He shakes his head again. I didn't. It wasn't me. The shadow. My shadow. He brings his hands up to cover his mouth while his eyes remain fixed on the image. In the photo, the man called Ian lies on his back. His mouth is open in a cry that will never be allowed to end, while his eyes are tightly closed. Below the pale neck is an open cavity of a chest that is impossible to comprehend. Skin, frayed and torn, is scattered to either side of the torso, still holding fast to strips of meat. Snapped ribs stand out from the mess in two lines like the colonnade of an ancient temple. Entrails spill from the broken cage in a dozen shades of red, while the heart lays broken. Five black hollows where five fingers penetrated the organ's stubborn flesh. How well did you know, Ian? Lyle stands and walks over to refill her water glass from the plastic jug. Antony moves his hands away from his mouth and watches her. Ian, not well, I mean... I mean, we were flatmates for two, almost three years, but I didn't know him before. Before I moved in, I mean. Hmm, she says as she walks across the room. Did you get on? Ever argue? Argue like... Like what? Antony rubs his hands together, the scratching sound of his dry skin reverberating around the silent room. I mean, he played horrible music sometimes. I left my washing up after breakfast now and then. Normal things. Normal things, yes. We never got really angry at one another. Lyle sits again, places her hands palm side down on the table. What happened last night, Antony? She looks down at the photograph, then up at him. Antony's eyes, too, fly to the photo, his breathing accelerating into gasps, and then slowing again as he looks back at Lyle. I've already explained all of this, he says, clenching his fists. I'd like you to explain again, to me. Lyle picks up her pencil and presses the point to the pad in front of her. Antony sighs, shaking his head. Okay, it was the early evening, about seven, I suppose. I'd just eaten. I was cleaning up. I caught something, you know, out of the corner of my eye. What did you see, Anthony? Well, it, it was over here, 
He waves his right hand at Hedhaid, rolling his wrist. So I looked around, and it was my shadow. It was peeling away. Coming loose, you said. Coming loose, right. Antony leans forward and drinks some water. And it just slipped away, out of sight. But the light was still here, at my left. He holds up the left hand now. Lyle scribbles frantically on the pad. She finishes writing and then looks up. Where was it? The shadow. Antony swallows loudly. It was behind me, cast at an angle across the table and the wall behind. I dropped the plate I was washing up in the sink and spun around. Then I noticed the eyes. The eyes? Silvery eyes like coins or molten metal hanging there. Lyle puts the pen down. Is this different from how he normally appears? Anthony shrugs his shoulders. Not exactly, but when they're silver eye, it means he'll speak, means I'll hear the voice. All right, so what did he say to you? At first, nothing. He just slipped from one side of the kitchen to the other, those eyes watching me. Then he stopped completely still and spoke in that terrible, rasping voice. Told me that he needed to do something terrible. He needed to? Lyle glanced down at Anthony's hands, trembling on the table. That's what he said. He needed to do something terrible. I was afraid. I asked him not to hurt me. He laughed. Laughed? Because you were afraid? Anthony nodded. You said it was stupid, that I shouldn't be afraid of my own shadow. What did you say to him? I told him that I was afraid. Afraid of what something terrible meant. And did he respond to that? There wasn't time. We heard the key in the front door and then Ian. Ian was home. Lyle scribbles more notes on the pad. Go on. He tossed his jacket over the back of the sofa, the way he usually does, and then came into the kitchen to say hello. As soon as he arrived, I could see him. My shadow, I mean. Watching him. I told Ian he should leave. How did Ian feel about that? He'd just got home from work after a ten-hour shift. He was pissed off. I mean, how would you feel? Of course. So did he leave, I mean? Anthony shook his head. He asked me if I'd been taking my pills. Said I looked a fucking state. Excuse my language. Your pills? Are these the... Orphanadrine? Is that right? Those, yeah. Antipsychotics? Help you deal with hallucinations? So they tell me. And had you? I'd missed them for a couple of days. The prescription had finished. I thought there was another blister pack in the box. I was just waiting till payday to pick more up. More frantic writing on the pad. Then what happened? I told him that I was taking them. I lied, okay? Didn't want to scare him. He knew how serious my condition was. Is. Did he believe you? I think so, yeah. But he said I should up the dose. That I looked a real mess. Did that upset you? Frustrate you? A bit, I suppose, but I just decided to go back to my washing up. Then, when he went to leave the kitchen, it started. It started? How do you mean? My shadow. It shoved him in the back as he left the room. He sprawled forward and fell onto the edge of the sofa. Then he slumped onto the floor with the force of it. Okay, what happened after that? Then the shadow was on top of him, one hand on his throat and the other one just clawing and grabbing at his chest. 
Were you washing up while all of this happened? Antony nods vigorously. Yeah, well, at least until I heard Ian groaning. So how did you see the shadow push him and Ian? Lyle looks at her notes. Falling on the sofa. What? Antony clasps his hands together, squeezes. How did you see if your back was turned? I... what? I don't know. Maybe I turned when he pushed him. I'm not sure. Lyle shakes her head as she writes more. Okay, and what happened after that? I rushed over and stooped down to where the shadow was, but he shoved me off. He just kept digging at Ian's chest. I saw the fabric rip, his t-shirt, and then... Blood. You continued to try to fight him off? I... Yes, I think so, yes. No, no, I remember now. I hit my head when he threw me off. On the door frame. Lyle puts the pencil down. Finish the story. I was dizzy when I hit my head. I think it was quite hard, so I just sat and watched the world dancing in my vision. There was more and more blood, and then I heard this awful snap. Ribs? Antony nods, and a tear traces the line of those that fell earlier down his left cheek. The shadow turned to me, and he smiled. He has no mouth. It's a bloody shadow, but I know he was smiling. He lifted his arm up, and then he brought it down and jammed it into the cavity of Ian's chest. The sound he made then, good God! Antony shakes his head, his eyes closed. He was still just barely alive at this point, but the fingers jabbed into the heart and he screamed. The sound he made, Jesus! Lyle reopens the plastic folder and slips out two more photographs. One is of Antony's grey Adidas sweatshirt, stained crimson. The other is of Antony himself. His forearms caked in rust-coloured blood, his hands especially dark with it. Let me tell you what I think happened, she says, leaving the photos under Antony's nose. Antony nods, he wants to know. I think you had stopped your medication and you saw something. Something that wasn't there. You believed it was, but it wasn't there. You had a fit of rage when Ian called you out on the medication. You pushed him over the sofa, you climbed on top of him. You murdered him in this, this monstrous fashion. There really is no other word. What do you think about that? Antony smiles, a broad grin that reveals his off-white teeth. He takes a sip from his water glass and slowly lowers it back to the table. They said the same, you know, when I was fourteen. Lyle digs into the file to pull out a sheaf of discoloured paper that Antony knows is his medical record. The school incident? Antony nods. Yeah, that one. You don't need to look at the report, I remember it. Crystal clear. Lyle places the papers back on the desk and gestures for him to continue. That boy, John, always an obnoxious prick, by the way, was winding us all up after athletics practice. We were all sick of him, but my shadow was the only one that would take any real action. It was the first time. The first time it came loose. Antony shakes his head. No, no, it's always done that, as long as I can remember. But it was the first time he spoke, the first time I saw the glinting silver in his eyes. Lyle's voice was dry in her throat. What did he say? He said it was time that boy shut his mouth. I laughed at first, more from feeling uncomfortable than from anything being funny per se. And the voice, dirty vibrations like a speaker with a tear in the cone. But I agreed, told him he was right. Could the other boy see the shadow? Antony's eyes rolled up, looking at the ceiling as he thought about it. I'm not sure if they could, but they saw what happened. They were all screaming, more like infants than schoolboys, when they saw what happened. What did happen, Antony? You've read the file. 
I want you to tell me. Very well. The shadow stepped in towards him, put one hand here under his arm. Antony cups his own underarm to demonstrate. Then he put the other hand on the elbow and just snapped the arm backwards. You should have heard the snap when the shoulder popped out, like a huge log catching on a campfire. Lyle is holding the pencil again, making a note of Antony's words. She puts the pen down, finished. You're smiling, Antony. Is this a pleasant memory for you? Pleasant? Antony's eyes flick upwards again as he thinks. I don't know about that, but humour is certainly. The guy deserved it. I see. After that assault, you started on the drugs. The orphanodrine. And there have been no more incidents of this nature until yesterday, is that right? Antony scrunches up his face. Not exactly. The shadow still comes loose. It's just the eyes, the voice, the violence that have been absent. Do you think that's connected to the medicine? Antony takes another drink. I don't know. You'd have to ask him. He nods towards the shadow, cast diagonally from the light of the small window onto the floor. I'm asking what you think. I know, and I'm telling you I don't know, so let's ask him. Antony stands and takes a step closer to the window. He stands still and looks down at the projection of himself flowing out across the room and distorting as it undulates over the leg of the chair. Lyle stands, moves to the other side of the window. She looks down at the floor, following Antony's gaze. She looks across the small space that separates them. How do we do this? Antony glances over at her. Watch, he points down to the ground. Do you see it moving? Lyle looks down at the ground. The world before her eyes is completely still. Then it flinches. An arm, a leg, begins to slip across the floor, tiny distances almost imperceptible. Her eyes flash back to Antony, motionless. She looks back at the shadow on the floor and it, too, is frozen. Did I imagine that? She asks the question aloud, without meaning to. She closes her eyes, her head swimming. Then she hears a voice, distorted, flamingly. She should run before her questions get her into trouble, Antony. Her eyes flash open and she sees Antony, his back pressed to the wall, his eyes scrunched shut. She glances down at the floor, the shadow. She tries to find where it connects to his body, her eyes turning with her in a state of panic. I have to... She scoops up the file and runs from the room. The voice recorder still running. That was Kev Harrison's Afraid of My Own Shadow, as read by Jason Stubbs. Born in Staffordshire, England, Jason moved to America in 2000 to continue his career as an electronic engineer. Married with two boys and one girl, he lives in a suburb of the Dallas and Fort Worth, Texas metroplex. Hobbies include movies, video games, mountain biking, American craft beer, and motorsports. Formula One, not NASCAR. He enjoys reading sci-fi and horror fiction stories and started listening to podcast audio stories when his commute to work took over an hour each way. Scott Sigler and J.C. Hutchins fueled his addiction, forcing him to search for more podcasts as his addiction grew. Thank you, Jason, 
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Our second story is a classic from Gertrude Atherton. Gertrude Franklin Horn Atherton was an American author. Many of her novellas are set in her home state of California. Her bestseller, Black Oxen, was made into a silent movie of the same name. In addition to novels, she wrote short stories, essays, and articles for magazines and newspapers on such issues as feminism, politics, and war. She was strong-willed, independent-minded, and sometimes controversial, especially for her anti-communism. Listen with me, children of the night, to Gertrude Atherton's The Striding Place Weagle, Continental and Detached tired early of grouse shooting. To stand propped against the sod fence while his host's workmen routed up the birds with long poles and drove them towards the waiting guns made him feel himself a parody on the ancestors who roamed the moors and forests of this west riding of Yorkshire in hot pursuit of game worth killing. But when in England in August he always accepted whatever proffered for the season and invited his host to shoot pheasants on his estate in the south. The amusements of life, he argued, should be accepted with the same philosophy as its ills. It had been a bad day. A heavy rain had made the moor so spongy that it fairly sprang beneath the feet. Whether or not the grouse had haunts of their own, wherein they were immune from rheumatism, the bag had been small. The women, too, were an unusually dull lot, with the exception of a new-minded debutante who bothered Weagle at dinner by demanding the verbal restoration of the vague paintings on the vaulted roof above them. 
But it was not one of these things that sat on Weagle's mind as, when the other men went up to bed, he let himself out of the castle and sauntered down to the river. His intimate friend, the companion of his boyhood, the chum of his college days, his fellow traveler in many lands, the man for whom he possessed a stronger affection than for all men, had mysteriously disappeared two days ago, and his track might have been sprung to the upper air for all Tracy had left behind of him. He had been a guest on the adjoining estate during the past week, shooting with the fervor of a true sportsman, making love in the intervals to Adeline Cavan, and apparently in the best of spirits. As far as was known, there was nothing to lower his mental mercury, for his rent roll was a large one. Miss Cavan blushed whenever he looked at her, and, being one of the best shots in England, he was never happier than in August. The suicide theory was preposterous, all agreed, and there was as little reason to believe he was murdered. Nevertheless, he had walked out of Marsh Abbey two nights ago without a hat or overcoat and had not been seen since. The country was being patrolled night and day. A hundred keepers and workmen were beating the woods and poking the bogs on the moors, but as yet not so much as a handkerchief had been found. Weagle did not believe for a moment that Wyatt Gifford was dead, and although it was impossible not to be affected by the general uneasiness, he was disposed to be more angry than frightened. At Cambridge, Gifford had been an incorrigible practical joker, and by no means had outgrown the habit. It would be like him to cut across the country in his evening clothes, board a cattle train, and amuse himself touching up the picture of the sensation in West Riding. However, Weagle's affection for his friend was too deep to companion with tranquility in the present state of doubt, and, instead of going to bed early with the other men, he determined to walk until ready for sleep. He went down to the river and followed the path through the woods. There was no moon, but the stars sprinkled their cold light upon the pretty belt of water flowing passively past wood and ruin beneath green masses of overhanging rocks or sloping banks tangled with tree and shrub, leaping occasionally over stones with harsh notes of an angry scold to recover its equanimity the moment the way was clear again. It was very dark in the depths where Weagle trod. He smiled as he recalled a remark of Gifford's. An English wood is like a good many other things in life, very promising at a distance but a hollow mockery when you get within. You see daylight on both sides, and the sun freckles the very bracken. Our woods need the night to make them seem what they ought to be, what they once were, before our ancestors' descendants demanded so much more money in these much more varied days. Weagle strolled along smoking and thinking of his friend, his pranks, many of which had done more credit to his imagination than this, and recalling conversations that had lasted the night through. Just before the end of the London season, they had walked the streets one hot night after a party, discussing the various theory of the soul's destiny. That afternoon, they had met at the coffin of a college friend whose mind had been blank for the past three years. Some months previously, they had called at the asylum to see him. 
His expression had been senile, his face imprinted with a record of debauchery. In death, the face was placid, intelligent, without ignoble lineation, the face of the man they had known at college. Weagle and Gifford had had no time to comment there, and the afternoon and evening were full, but, coming forth from the house of festivity together, they had reverted almost at once to the topic. I cherish the theory, Gifford had said, that the soul sometimes lingers in the body after death. During madness, of course, it is an impotent prisoner, albeit a conscious one. Fancy its agony and its horror. What more natural than that, when the life spark goes out, the tortured soul should take possession of the vacant skull and triumph once more for a few hours while old friends look their last. It has had time to repent while compelled to crouch and behold the result of its work, and it has shrived itself into a state of comparative purity. If I had my way, I should stay inside my bones until the coffin had gone into its niche, that I might obviate from my poor old comrade the tragic impersonality of death. And I should like to see justice done to it, as it were, to see it lowered among its ancestors with the ceremony and solemnity that are its due. I'm afraid that if I discovered myself too quickly, I should yield to curiosity and hasten to investigate the mysteries of space. You believe in the soul as an independent entity, then? That it and the vital principle are not one and the same? Absolutely. The body and the soul are twins, life comrades, sometimes friends, sometimes enemies, but always loyal in the last instance. Someday, when I'm tired of the world, I shall go to India and become a Mahatma, solely for the pleasure of receiving proof during this life of this independent relationship. Suppose you were not sealed up properly and returned after one of your astral flights to find your earthly part unfit for habitation. Is an experiment I don't think I should care to try, unless even juggling with soul and flesh had paled. That would not be an uninteresting predicament. I should rather enjoy experimenting with broken machinery. The high wild roar of water smote suddenly upon Weagle's ear and he checked his memories. He had left the wood and walked out on the huge slippery stones which nearly closed the river wharf at this point, and watched the waters boil down into the narrow pass with their furious, untiring energy. The black quiet of the woods rose high on either side. The stars seemed colder or whiter just above. On either hand, the perspective of the river might have run into a rayless cavern. There was no lonelier spot in England nor one which had the right to claim so many ghosts, if ghosts there were. Weagle was not a coward, but he recalled uncomfortably the tales of those that had been done to death in the Strid. Wordsworth, boy of Egremont, had been disposed of by the practical Whitaker, but countless others, more venturesome than wise, had gone down into that narrow boiling course, never to appear in the still pool a few yards beyond. Below the great rocks, which formed the walls of the Strid, was believed to be a natural vault, onto which shelves the dead were drawn. The spot had an ugly fascination. Weagle stood, visioning skeletons uncoffined and green, 
the home of the eyeless things which had devoured all that had covered and filled the rattling symbol of man's mortality, then fell to wondering if anyone had attempted to leap the strid of late. It was covered with slime. He had never seen it look so treacherous. He shuddered and turned away, impelled despite his manhood to flee the spot. As he did so, something tossing in the foam below the fall, something as white yet independent of it, caught his eye and arrested his step. Then he saw that it was describing a contrary motion to the rushing water, an upward-backward motion. Weagle stood rigid, breathless. He fancied he heard the crackling of his hair. Was that a hand? It thrust itself still higher above the boiling foam, turned sidewise, and four frantic fingers were distinctly visible against the black rock beyond. Weagle's superstitious terror left him. A man was there, struggling to free himself from the suction beneath the strid, swept down, doubtless, but a moment before his arrival, perhaps as he stood with his back to the current. He stepped as close to the edge as he dared. The hand doubled as if in imprecation, shaking savagely in the face of the force which leaves its creatures to immutable law, then spread wide again, clutching, expanding, crying for help as audibly as the human voice. Weagle dashed to the nearest tree, dragged and twisted off a branch with his strong arms, and returns as swiftly to the strid. The hand was in the same place, still gesticulating as wildly. The body was undoubtedly caught in the rocks below, perhaps already halfway along one of these hideous shelves. Weagle let himself down upon a lower rock, braced his shoulder against the mass beside him, then, leaning out over the water, thrust the branch into the hand. The fingers clutched at it convulsively. Weagle tugged powerfully. His own feet dragged perilously near the edge. For a moment, he produced no impression. Then, an arm shot above the waters. The blood sprang to Weagle's head. He was choked with the impression that the strid had him in her roaring hold, and he saw nothing. Then, the mist cleared. The hand and arm were nearer, although the rest of the body was still concealed by the foam. Weagle peered out with distended eyes. The meager light revealed in the cufflinks a peculiar device. The fingers clutching the branch were as familiar. Weagle forgot the slippery stones, the terrible death if he stepped too far. He pulled with passionate will and muscle. Memories flung themselves into the hot light of his brain, trooping rapidly upon each other's heels, as in the thought of drowning. Most of the pleasures of his life, good and bad, were identified in some way with this friend. Scenes of college days, of travel, where they had deliberately sought adventure and stood between one another and death upon more occasions than one, of hours of delightful companionship among the treasures of art, and others, in the pursuit of pleasure, flashed like the changing particles of a kaleidoscope. Weagle had loved several women, but he would have flouted in these moments the thought that he had ever loved any woman as he loved Wyatt Gifford. There were so many charming women in the world, and in the thirty-two years of his life he had never known another man to whom he had cared to give his intimate friendship. He threw himself on his face. His wrists were cracking. The skin was torn from his hands, the fingers still gripping the stick. 
There was life in them yet. Suddenly, something gave way. The hand swung about, tearing the branch from Weagle's grasp. The body had been liberated and flung outward, though still submerged by the foam and spray. Weagle scrambled to his feet and sprang along the rocks, knowing that the dangers from suction was over and that Gifford must be carried straight to the quiet pool. Gifford was a fish in the water and could live under it longer than most men. If he survived this, it would not be the first time that his pluck and science had saved him from drowning. Weagle reached the pool. A man in his evening clothes floated on it, his face turned towards a projecting rock over which his arm had fallen, upholding the body. The hand that had held the branch hung limply over the rock while its white reflection was visible in the black water. Weagle plunged into the shallow pool, lifted Gifford in his arms, and returned to the bank. He laid the body down and threw off his coat that he might be the freer to practice the methods of resuscitation. He was glad for the moment's respite. The valiant life in the man might have been exhausted in that last struggle. He had not dared to look at his face, to put his ear to the heart. The hesitation lasted but a moment. There was no time to lose. He turned to his prostrate friend. As he did so, something strange and disagreeable smote his senses. For half a moment, he did not appreciate its nature. Then, his teeth cracked together, his feet, his outstretched arms pointed towards the woods. But he sprang to the side of the man and bent down and peered into his face. There was no face. This striding place is called the Strid, a name which it took of yore. A thousand years hath it borne the name, and it shall a thousand more. That was Gertrude Atherton's The Striding Place, as read by our own Seth Williams. Seth Williams is a narrator and our kick-ass editor here at Tales to Terrify. He enjoys listening to fictured podcasts and audio drama, and shares his life with a husband, dog, and cat. Thank you, Seth. Well, children of the night... The hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Support us on Patreon for access to ad-free episodes and bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash tales to terrify to sign up. Or if PayPal's more your style, you can support us via the link near the bottom of our homepage at talestoterrify.com. And if you've got a minute to spare, We'd love it if you'd pop over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and leave us a rating or a review. Reviews are huge to a volunteer-run podcast like ours. They help keep us on the charts so we can infect the ears of new listeners. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Julia Zellman, and myself... Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. 
Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we pull you back down into darkness with more Tales to Terrify. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.